If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the book of Revelation. Book of Revelation, chapter 2. And once you get there, if you could, bow with me as we go before the Lord in prayer. Revelation, chapter 2. God, this is your word. Grant us the grace to stand on the solid rock of Scripture without compromise. Truly believing, God, that all of the ground is sinking sand. This is your word. Will you incline our hearts? Will you quicken our minds? Holy Spirit of God, will you open our eyes to see the treasures hidden in the field. That, God, we would be more than willing to give up everything just to gain that field. We pray against every evil force that is arrayed against us. We pray against every demonic force that would want to distract, distort, and move us away, God, from your word. We command you right now in the name of Jesus Christ to remove your influence. We command you right now to remove any assignment that you may have that has not been given to you by our Lord, our God, and your King. And so, God, we come. Holy Spirit, move. Move in a way, God, that leaves an indelible mark, not by might nor by power, but by your Spirit, we ask these things. In Jesus' name. And everybody said, Amen. I'm sure many of us have heard about the revival that began at Asbury Christian University in a very small town, Wilmore, Kentucky. They found a new sense of community following what is now, at least from what they're saying, the revival is beginning to taper off. Where students have been saying that God is using them to bring together a a conglomeration of individuals that would not necessarily come together under one roof. The students have been talking about the various cultures that have showed up on their doorstep. People of every race, various age groups and generations. A couple from Japan holding a makeshift sign waved at passing cars, blessing early morning churchgoers. A group of missionaries from Canada strummed guitars and sang outside of Hughes' auditorium. A Dutch Christian group fed their children snacks while flipping through the pages of Scripture. One student said, just different languages all at the same time in one place, praising God. Like, that really is a taste of heaven. As very senior student Alexandra Presta told Fox News Digital, this was just a glimpse into what heaven is going to be like. A gospel-revealing, missional community. As I begin to reflect on this revival and how it's spread, I ask this question to myself, and I want to ask it of us as we explore God's word. What is the fruit of genuine revival? What is the fruit that truly reveals that revival has truly taken place. When we find ourselves in the book of Revelation, chapter 2, 
And it is a church that is indeed in need of revival. In fact, do you know what that church is? For some reason, I can't seem to get away from it. It's the church in Ephesus, the Ephesian church. But now we find ourselves 30 years approximately after the letter that Paul wrote that we studied to the Ephesians. And Jesus himself is coming to the church in Ephesus decades later. And in chapter 2, verse 1, we read, To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, The words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. So here you have a picture of Jesus Christ. He himself, the resurrected eternal one, is now coming down and he is addressing the church. And it says that he holds seven stars. When in verse 20 of chapter 1 it tells us who those seven stars are, at the end of verse 20 it says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches. And then it also says the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So the stars are the angels, the lampstands are the churches. And Ephesus was swimming as a city in emperor worship. They were dealing with idol worship, as Artemis was the primary means of attempting to acquire some type of acclamation toward God, where they engaged in temple prostitution, where there were thousands of male and female sex priests. This city was under the auspices of demonic movement, where they found themselves under the practice of magic. We see that in Acts chapter 19. And so it was a ripe environment for false teachers. It was a ripe environment for false apostles. There were all kind of syncretistic ideas about God and who he was and how one ought to come to him. And in verse 2, it says, as he addresses Ephesus, I know your works, Jesus says to them, your toil and your patient endurance and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and and bearing up for my name's sake and you have not grown weary. So here what you see Jesus Christ himself Just imagine Jesus coming down and and commending living way, saying from his own voice, these are the things that I'm so proud of. I'm so happy to see that you are engaged in these types of things. I wonder what it must have felt like for Ephesus to hear the very voice of Jesus through the prophet as John declared what he had seen. And what he commends them for is two things, toil and endurance. And we see that there in verse 2. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance. This, in many ways, is a major theme. Toil and endurance of the very book of Revelation. It's a recurring word that is throughout the entire book if you study it. In chapter 1, verse 9, chapter 2, verse 2, verse 3, chapter 3, chapter 13, chapter 14. And it is always in the context of of pervasive evil. 
So here he's commending them for their toil and endurance because of the evil that is surrounding their culture and their city. And you see the final element, it actually produces kind of like a chiastic structure because Jesus repeats himself in verse 3 and says almost virtually the same thing. I know you are enduring patiently. And so in the very middle, if you will, what was so keen about it is in verse 2 in the middle it says that you cannot bear with those who are evil. So their toil and their endurance, right in the middle there, verse 2, between 2 and 3, their toil and their endurance is that they are bearing with and they are fighting against evil. And Jesus commends them for this. You see, the mark of the true church, as Pastor James has said so many times, the mark of the true church in every generation and especially in this generation, will be our faithfulness to the truth. It will be us toiling and enduring and bearing all of the things that come against the truth. This is what will mark the church in our generation in the West. And there are many things among us, false teachings, false apostles, just like in those days in Ephesus, Whether it be theologies like the word faith movement that teach us that we can actually actualize the very things if we just simply have enough faith. That God has destined us to be healthy and wealthy. And that if we just simply put enough faith, then we can actually get the health and wealth that we promised. Which is not true. It's a false gospel. The gospel that we hear in our world today is that all roads lead to God. Everybody now is spiritual. No matter where you go, no matter what you look at, no matter what you read, everyone has some semblance of spirituality. Whether you're Christian, whether you're Buddhist, whether you're Mormon, whatever it may be, all roads lead to God. When we know that the scriptures tell us that Jesus is the only way, truth, and the life. Our culture and the gospel and the teaching of our culture is the heart gets what the heart wants. That was actually a term that was said by Woody Allen. And you know where that term came from? Woody Allen, who actually married his own child that they adopted from another country. That's where that phrase comes from, the heart gets what the heart wants. And of course, if you've been around long enough here at Living Way, the one pervasive Western doctrine that we continue to hear is what we've entitled progressive Christianity. And the question in our day as the church will be, will we hold to? And will we even try as the church to paint the beautiful mosaic of God's definition of gender, marriage, and sexuality? Or will we grow weary of the constant assault against God's definition of marriage? Will we continue to bear with the culture as it bears down on us and tells us, Christians, you've got it wrong? Christians, the way that you see it is oppressive. It's not inclusive. Marriage is not just between a man and a woman. God's definition of gender is not male and female. Will we in the 21st century as the church of Jesus Christ, will we come alongside those within our culture who are confused and struggling 
Even now, some of you probably under the sound of my voice are struggling with your sexuality. Will we as the church of Jesus Christ come alongside that challenge, that hurt, that confusion, that disillusionment? We feel for that. And will we as a church come alongside those who are struggling with with gender dysphoria to help them to see the wonder and the beauty of the fact that God didn't make a mistake when he made you? That you are fearfully and wonderfully made. And we as a church want to come alongside you in that journey that you might come to experience and know the kind of freedom that only Jesus can give in that area of your life. Are we going to be that as the church in the 21st century? As J.D. Greer gave an illustration of a lesbian couple at his church and talked about the fact that as they came, they heard the gospel. And one of the individuals of the couple felt God's tug and she came to embrace the gospel of Jesus Christ. Over time, the tension with her spouse Cause for them to leave the church. But when they went to a progressive church, the one woman who actually got saved said, everywhere I go outside of the church where we were at, I just don't feel Jesus in these places. And so she went back to J.D. Greer's church where she got the truth and the gospel. And God, in his grace over time, brought her spouse back to the church as she wondered and questioned why her lesbian wife would go back to that church. Well, J.D. Greer and their leadership helped this woman actually sever ties in that relationship. And as that other woman came back frustrated that, that, that this church had ruined her life, she began to hear the gospel. And because they did not compromise the truth, they both experienced freedom in Jesus Christ. And I remember afterwards she said, I'm so glad that you guys didn't compromise the truth because the reality was I was blind. Thank you for walking with me patiently to help me see because now I'm free. But sadly, we see in our culture Prominent Christian leaders like Andy Stanley capitulating, failing to call sin, sin, because the gospel isn't sweet unless sin is real. It's not good news unless you first realize just how bad of a predicament you are in. And it breaks my heart that leaders like Andy Stanley are capitulating to the culture. You see, what Jesus here is describing of the church in Ephesus is that they are spiritually exhausted because they're fighting to remain faithful. And Jesus has given them a high five and say, you guys go. I commend you for this. I want you to hear that again. Jesus is commending the church for holding down the truth in an evil day. The greatest question for the Western church will be, whose commendation will be of greater worth to us? Whose commendation will be of greater worth to us? Do we want to hear Jesus say, well done, even though the world tells us no? 
Now, in all that Jesus commends them for, and I wanted to highlight that because I don't want us to look past it to see as if God is condemning them in this way, but there's something that they're missing. There's something that Jesus identifies that he wants to add on to what he is already pleased with in them. And this is where we will see what is the fruit of genuine revival. And I want to see three expressions of that fruit that we see in the text. And then after that, what are the consequences, both positive and negative, if we don't step into these fruits and expressions of true revival? And then lastly, how do we put ourselves in position to experience it? So the first question, what is the fruit of genuine revival? Three expressions. I'm going to start with one that most of you, if you're familiar with this text, uh, are familiar with. But there's one toward the end, the third one, that I don't know if any of us have considered as it was even a new insight for me when it comes to this text. And we see it in verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love you had at first. So here the thing that Jesus says that he has against the church of Ephesus, as commendable as it is about them holding down the truth, is the fact that they had lost their first love. In 1677, 27-year-old Henry Schugel wrote to a friend this, the worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love, end quote. It's powerful, isn't it? If you haven't read Schugel's The Life of God and the Soul of Man, it's like this thin. It's by a Puritan. He's a Puritan. It's a wonderful, wonderful book. If you haven't read it, read it. That sentence right there is amongst the most penetrating sentences on almost the English language. The worth and excellency of a soul is to be measured by the object of its love. You see, the soul, as Bloom says, is measured by its flights. Some low and others high. The heart is known by its delights, as John Piper says in The Pleasure of God. A pleasure never lies. Pleasures always reveal Love. You see, pleasure is the whistleblower of the heart. Pleasure is the measure of our treasure. You see, we know what we truly treasure is what we truly love because Jesus said, where your treasure is, your what? Heart will be also. So it's not what we dutifully will, because sometimes we will things. But it's what we passionately want that reveals our excellence or our evil. As John Piper says in The Pleasures of God, pleasure is the joy we experience over a treasure that we love that makes us willing to sell everything that we had just to get that treasure. If you want to know what you love, just look at what you find pleasure in. 
And that's where your love will be. And it's very easy for us, if we're not careful in our own Christian lives, to move away from our first love. Something was stolen from me just a few weeks ago that was valuable. And I found myself slammed to the ground. A deep, profound sense of disillusionment, sadness, and a lack of equilibrium just came over my heart and in my soul the moment I found out it was stolen from me. But not only was it like that for me in that moment, it lingered. And I remember telling myself, God, where is this coming from? Because honestly, I know here in my mind, but down here for some reason, it's not translating. I am more sad, depressed, frustrated, confused, and angry than I ought to be. If I understood the measure of the treasures that I have in Jesus Christ right now, these things ought to be for me a passing and fleeting moment, but yet they rest and they linger and I'm wrestling. And I remember in that moment, the Holy Spirit telling me, you know what, son? It's because you've been fostering over a long period of time a pleasure in this that has taken precedence over your pleasure in me. Slam. God just rebuked my soul in that moment. What this is revealing, son, this is good. I'm doing something good. I took something away from you to reveal what was really going on at a heart level so that you can move away from the very thing that truly is not worth your pleasure. You remember I preached just a few weeks. I've been preaching about that thing that you've been waiting for that you want God to meet you in. It has a name. That thing that you wish that you could push the control button. Remember that control button? And I've talked to some of you guys about that control button. If you could push that control button and God gave you control over that thing right now, would you push that control button? Or or, or what is that area in your life right now where, where the number of your days... The number of your days are preoccupied with that thing because that thing gives you pleasure. And the number of your days are not preoccupied with the God who is above all things and far greater than any pleasure. What is that thing for you? As Bloom writes, what do we really want? That tells us where our first love is. What do you dream of having right now? That's what tells you where your first love is. What's fueling right now for you? What's fueling your hope for the future? That if you did not have that thing or don't get that thing, then you'll ultimately feel like you don't have a future that's worth living for. That's your first love. What right now is capturing your attention most? That's your first love. What are you focusing on when you read on a daily basis? That's your first love. What are you searching the internet for constantly? 
That's your first love. What are you spending your time and your money on? Just look at your bank account and you will see your first love. What are you making plans to pursue? That's your first love. Or maybe we can ask it negatively, as Bloom says. What desired person or thing is fueling your sadness and your depression right now? What has you angry, frustrated, and cynical because you don't have that very thing? Your answer to those questions will tell you your first love. You see, we cannot help but seek what we love. And we cannot help but grow disillusioned, bitter, and even hopeless if we don't believe that we can't have or get our hands on what we love. What is it that you can't get your hands on right now? Listen, the first indicator of moving away from Jesus as your first love is not embracing false doctrine. It's not falling into immorality. It's not outright apostasy. The first indicator for moving away from Jesus is when Jesus is no longer your preeminent love and the rest will follow. As the French writer and aviator Antoine de Saint wrote, if you want to build a ship, don't drum up people together to collect wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather teach them to long for the sea. They'll build the ship. You see, the fruit of genuine revival, the first fruit of genuine revival is a return for a longing for the sea. It's when you begin to burn again in a way in which maybe you hadn't for a long time for Jesus to be your pleasure. That's the first fruit. The second fruit, and I will go through this one quickly, is not only a love for Christ, but love of others. And we see this because this is what we see Paul commend to the Ephesian church. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 15, he talks about the fact that he is thankful to God because of their love for Jesus Christ, in verse 15, and their love toward all the saints. And he concludes the letter in chapter 6, verse 24, saying, blessings to those who love our Lord Jesus Christ with love incorruptible. If you look all through the book of Ephesians, from chapter 4 on, it's all about what? What does it look like for us to love each other? You see, true revival seen where people can see the manifestation of a God that you can't see is when we love in a way that the world can't love. What's interesting to me about this Asbury revival is that the sermon that sparked it off was about what? If you know, it was about love. The preacher got up and he preached on Romans chapter 12. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. That's church's family, amen? Look at the person sitting next to you and say, I love you with brotherly affection. Now tell, the other, now tell that person I just lied to you. No, I'm just messing with you 
This is the kind of love that is to characterize the church. Amen? It is what Paul says, outdo one another by showing honor. Do we outdo one another in showing one another honor? The world doesn't do that. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality, verse 13. Bless those who persecute you. You see, the church in Ephesus was getting persecuted, I'm sure. Right? I mean, they were being faithful, holding down the truth. But were they blessing the people that were coming against the truth? Are we blessing the people that are coming against the very truths that we're holding down as believers in Christ? Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do, do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he's thirsty, give him something to drink. For so by doing, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not overcome, overcome, do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with what? Good. Do we see that kind of love in the world? Should we see that kind of love in the church? This is why Jesus said, they will know that you are my disciples based on the fact that you hold down the truth. That's a part of it. But what did he say? Based on how you what? Love. Love. See, if we're going to give honor to what the Holy Spirit has done in this revival, if we're truly going to give honor to it, then we're going to put Christ as treasure. And secondarily, we're going to step into our calling to love one another like the world can't do it. Because that's when the world looks in And they're attracted to us. You see, the fruit of genuine revival is a return to Jesus as preeminent love. The fruit of true revival is a love as defined by this book that the world longs for that it cannot produce. But there's a third kind of love. The third kind of love that was a bit new to me in this text. And it's the third fruit of true revival. And he says in verse 4, but I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Now, the question I ask myself is, is what came before, verse 4, that would inform what first love means? And this is what I'm going to say. It means the love of being a witness of his love to the people around you. Do you love being a witness to those around you of how you have been loved by God. Is it your passion to be a witness? Well, where do you see this in the text? Well, look at verse 1. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, Now, what are the seven golden lampstands? We saw that in verse 20 of chapter 1. They are the what? The church. The church, we as the church, are lampstands. Now, my question is this. What is the function of a lampstand? To give what? Light. Now, this primary meaning of a lampstand as a witness is confirmed in Revelation chapter 11, verses 3 and 4. 
and I will grant authority to my two, what's that word there, everyone? Everybody say witnesses. And they will prophesy for 1,260 days, clothed in sackcloth. Verse 4, these are the two olive trees and the two, what are they called? Lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. So the two witnesses in the end times are called lampstands because they are witnesses. Now, this language also, when we're talking about end times, because Revelation is about end times, well, what's another text that talks about the end times? Matthew chapter 24, verse 12. And because lawlessness will be increased, which is the age we're living in right now, the love, okay, so we're talking about, we're talking about love here, right? Just like in Revelation chapter 2. The love of many will grow what? Cold. So we're talking about love. But the one who endures to the end will be saved. Okay? So now that same language, like in Revelation chapter 2, of endurance, right? Endurance and toil. Look at verse 14. And this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed throughout the whole world as a testimony. What's another word for testimony? Witness. To all the nations, then the end will come. Now, if you go to verse 11 of Matthew chapter 24, it actually mentions false teachers, just like in Ephesus. So what is Matthew 24 telling us here? The love of many growing cold. Well, you know what love growing cold is? It's not being a witness. That is an evidence of the fact that your love is growing cold. The evidence of a love growing cold is a failure to proclaim the gospel of the kingdom and the sea of all the other false gospels in the end times. Matthew chapter 5, verses 14 through 16. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Now here's what's also interesting. The lampstands, which is the church, also generally represent, watch this, the power of the Holy Spirit. This is seen implicitly in Zechariah chapter 4, verse 6. Not by might, nor by power, but by your what? Spirit. John, in Revelation, views the lamps that are on the stand, and if you've ever seen uh, the a lampstand it's like a menorah have you seen menorahs before they kind of the Jewish menorah that has all the branches that go up that's those are what the lampstands look like and on the top of the lampstands in Revelation the lamps on the lampstand are actually the spirit that's burning amongst the church empowering the church for witness so you see it in chapter 1, verse 4 of Revelation, and, cha- and, and verse 12 through 13. So the lamps on the stand, the, that flicker, that light is the Spirit, and the Spirit charges the church to be a witness of the light. Therefore, it is possible that the Ephesians, leaving their first love, is the suppression of 
of the spirit-filled giftings of the church that are necessary for the witness of the church in the world. I've been talking about us operating in our spiritual gifts. The world sees the God that we have come to see and know and love through the exercise of the gifts in the church. In Acts chapter 1, what does it tell us? Verse 8. You will be my what? Witnesses when the Spirit falls upon you. During this revival, there's a story of a girl at Asbury who was having a hard time. She was having a hard day. And as she was walking in campus, she felt a hand on her shoulder. And she turned around, and it was a stranger, a woman that she had never met before. And this woman tapped her on the shoulder, and she said, I just want to say that as I was watching you, something stuck out, and I felt like the Lord wanted me to tell you this, that as much as you feel like you don't belong and you stick out, I want you to know that God sees you. And that you stick out to him. And that you're not alone. In that moment, that girl said, that was exactly what my heart needed. Now, why do I tell that story? Because that person that tapped that woman on the shoulder and told her, I feel like the Lord is telling me to tell you something. That's a prophetic gifting. That girl that told that prophetic word to that girl had been a witness of God's Holy Spirit in her own life because she has that gifting. But now that girl that got touched on the shoulder has now witnessed God meeting her right where she needed him. You see, when the church operates in its giftings, it is a witness of the reality of the God that we say is. In John chapter 9, The key is being a witness. And it says in John chapter 9, the story of the man who was born blind. The Jews didn't believe that he had been blind and he had received his sight until they called the parents of the man. And they asked the parents, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? Well, the parents answered and they said, we we know this is our son and, and that he has been born blind, but how he sees we do not know. Nor do we know how his eyes have been opened. Ask him. He's of age. He will speak for himself. You see, the parents had witnessed something, hadn't they? But did they give a witness when asked? They did not. And the text tells us why. It says... In verse 22, that his parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. They loved their synagogue more than they loved the witness that they saw in Jesus, and so they denied what they saw. So for the second time then, you know what the Pharisees did? They went to the man. And they said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man, Jesus, is a sinner. So the man who was born blind answered, 
Whether he's a sinner, I do not know, but I'm about to give a witness. One thing I do know is that I was blind, but now I see. That man had witnessed the reality of a God in Christ Jesus. And you know what the consequence was? They kicked him out of the synagogue. You see, the parents didn't want to be kicked out of synagogue because the synagogue was a place of belonging. The synagogue was a place of community. The synagogue was a place of social status. If you got kicked out of the synagogue, you were pretty much at a loss for anything that you could find any recognition, comfort, help, or provision in. And so in that moment, you know what Jesus was testing? Where are you going to find your community? Where are you going to find your provision? Where are you going to find your belonging? Because guess what? If you witness of me, you're going to find in me all the things that the synagogue could give you times 10 million and into eternity. You see, that man had encountered a love worth losing it all for. And that empowered him to be a witness. You see, not only our pleasures, not only our pleasures, listen to this, but what we give witness to reveals our loves. Did you hear that? We saw based on the parent's witness and the man's witness where their love truly was. You can't say you love something you give no witness to to the people around you. You see, Peter denied Jesus three times, did he not? And what was the denial? That he was a what? A witness. Hey, weren't you? No, 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 no. Haven't seen him, don't know it, haven't witnessed nothing. Oh, well, you know, we saw you. No, you didn't see nothing. Oh, wait, no, we, no, you tripping. Cock-a-doodle-doo. Notice what Jesus did when he restores Peter and John. What does Jesus say? Do you what? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Because see, in his denial, he was communicating, I don't love you as my first. And so Jesus restored him back into that love. And then later on, was Peter a witness? Could anybody deny who his first love was? He loved his, his Lord even unto death. Amen? You see, to move away from your first love is to move away from the witness And when I, I've told you this song before, it's this gospel song. When I think about the Lord, how he saved me, how he raised me, how he filled me with the Holy Ghost, how he filled me to the uttermost, when I think about the Lord, and then that's that part you guys always know, it makes me want to shout, hallelujah, thank you, Jesus.
when you think about the Lord, do you want to shout? Do you want to shout because you've seen such wonder and beauty and goodness and pleasure and mercy and forgiveness and love that you just can't keep your mouth closed? And that's a part of the tradition of the black church. I know it's, you know, we talk about it and people laugh. Can I get a witness? Can I get a witness? That's why black church went on for so long. I mean, there's a lot of reasons. I don't have time to go into all the history. One of the reasons, one of the reasons why blacks and slavery stayed in church for so long is because they couldn't stop people from getting up to give a witness about what God had been and done for them. And they just gave room for it in the church. I know it's intimidating if I ask one of y'all right now to get a, hey, why don't you get up here and get a witness, right? Y'all couldn't handle black church. (laughs) Trust me. When you go to the black church, everybody got to have a sermon. Oh, it used to make me nervous. It used to make me so nervous. Oh, man, I used to sit in the pews like, dude, please don't look at me. I want to ask you, do you have a witness? I'm serious. I'm asking you, do you have a witness? Do you have opportunities, stories, examples, illustrations of the way God came and he just moved in your life in a way that's incalculable that nothing in this world can compare? Do you have a witness of the fact that God forgave you and loved you when you were the most unlovable thing in the world, that you did not deserve mercy and you did not deserve grace? Do you have a witness when there was no provision, when there was no bread, when there was no drink, and God showed up at your doorstep and put food in your counter? Does God actually have a witness in your life? Do you have a witness of the way in the fact that which you were depressed, lonely, sad, distracted, angry, frustrated, caught up in sin, and God in his grace and mercy and his power by the power of the Holy Spirit came and he lifted you up when you were in that valley and he brought you to the mountain. I'm asking you, do you have a witness? If you don't have a witness, and I'm telling you, you haven't felt his love. Because I could tell you right now, I could talk about God For eternity, I will, I will, and I can't wait until the very expression where all of this flesh that inhibits me from being able to stand in the presence of God and his holiness and declare his praise and his wonder and his goodness and his long-suffering and his patience and his love and his redemption and his sanctification, all, all amongst all the saints With all the angels singing, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. The whole earth is full of his glory. I cannot wait because one day I will be able to witness forever. You see, if you don't have a witness, then you have experienced his love. Well, if you don't have a witness, I'm going to give you one right now. 
We got a text this morning from our brother Brian. And as we've been on this building campaign, God has been faithful from the beginning. I mean, just, I'm, I'm running out of time. That's why I'm like, man, I don't even know where to start. We felt like God had called us to this city called Pasadena. Didn't know why, didn't know what God had in store. But we felt like he had called us. And then just last year, we felt God calling us to purchase a building for the first time in 23 years of Living Way's existence. It was a six-month journey that culminated in a sermon series. And in the middle of that sermon series, God in his grace just a few months prior had brought Brian and, and Rev and, and Charlotte. Rev helped to launch and get the whole building campaign moved for six months. He gathered up a team, what we call our enjoy team. And all you guys labored in various ways, month after month, hours upon hours. Brian and Charlotte prayed, showed us a, a potential location. And then Brian began negotiations. We looked at our budget. And then we asked you guys to give. We asked you guys to give. And we started this building campaign with nothing but an inclination that God wanted us to move. And so we moved with absolutely nothing. And after the six months, the pledges came in. And with the giving units, and I forgot what it was. I mean, you guys, our church isn't the biggest church. We were able to get $1.4 million in pledges. And when we talked to the organization that's been helping us, they told us that, that was about five times the national average of people within our church size and their giving. Well, currently we have 1.4 million committed. Our goal was 1.5. And we've been that journey for about two or three months trying to get this building. We came in mid-stride. There were people that were already ahead of us on the list. There were developers that were willing to give a lot more than what we were able to afford. There was then a cash offer that came in. And every step of the way, God has been faithful. The 10 million, that went away. They didn't want developers. We prayed some more. The cash offer, for some reason, this individual just backed out. I know why. We, they may not know why, but we know why. And then the devil tried to put a little wrench in, in it to discourage us, right? Because the way that we were going to be able to afford it is with what's called seller financing. Well, right when we offer seller financing, what happens? One of their other properties 
the individual's default due to seller financing. And so now the seller is like, ah, we're a little apprehensive. So what do we do? We pray and we pray. And then God, by his grace, had the broker that said, I feel like the spirit of God is telling me that this building is for you guys. Brokers don't do that. Broker, right? Come on now. Come on now. Y'all hearing me? Can I get a witness? Can I get a witness? So then, um, the broker takes our offer before the, um, one of the boards, the seller board, and we're praying. And I told you guys, I think a couple weeks ago, the seller board said, thumbs up. We, uh, we want to give them the property. But we got to go to the executive seller board. Like, man, how many of these? And so we prayed. This is a property that's nine, oh, probably worth, I don't know, nine, ten million dollars. This is a property that we should not be able to even afford. This should not even be on our radar. But we serve a God of the impossible. We just got a call this morning. Living Way Community Church. We got ourselves a building, homie. Come on now. Can I get a witness? Praise him. Praise him. Praise him. Praise him. Thank you, Jesus. Praise him. Thank you, Jesus, the God of the impossible. Thank you, Jesus, the God who goes far beyond what we can even think or imagine. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Can somebody shout up in here? Come on. Yep. Oh, praise the Lord. Far more abundantly than we could even ask or think. Our God owns a cattle on a thousand hills. What can man do to us? What God has in his mind, no man can thwart, period. Our name was on that building. Everybody else, get out the way. This is our God. So if you didn't have a witness coming in here this morning, you got one now. Well, Paul, um, excuse me, John in Revelation has summed it up for us. The fruit of genuine revival is a return to Jesus as your preeminent love. The fruit of true revival is a love as defined by this book, a love for the other that this world cannot produce. And to return to one's first love The fruit of authentic revival is the love of declaring the incomparable love of God for you in Christ. It's being a witness because you witness that about what you love. And so John 
gives a couple consequences that Jesus gives, and I'm going to try and wrap it up. He says in verse 5, the second part of verse 5, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. See, here's the consequence. If we don't step into the kind of love that I just described, those three kind of loves, then what Jesus says to the church in Ephesus is I'm going to remove your lampstand. In other words, I'm going to remove your witness. And what's interesting is sometime in the second century, the church in Ephesus disappeared. You can look it up historically. And there has never been a congregation in that area since. It was stunning for me to recognize that. It appears that in some way, obviously, the church of Ephesus failed to step into this kind of love. And Jesus removed their lampstand. In that area of the world now, all you have is Muslim movement and population. Why do I share that with you? A church that has forgotten to love in the ways in which I described is a church that has ceased to be the church. And therefore, it is not needed anymore. Let us be faithful as we move into this next building to be faithful to be a loving witness. That God in his mercy will not remove our lampstand, but that will continue to shine brightly. And so I end with the three things that he gives in the text for how we can continue to exhibit the fruit of true revival. And he gives three things in verse five. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent is number two, and then I'll use for our's sake to give the alliteration R. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen, repent and return to the works that you did first. Remember, repent, and return. Those are the things that Jesus commands us to do if we're going to continue to be a lampstand that is a witness for him. So what I'm going to ask you to do right now is I'm going to ask you to just take some time to reflect and allow the Holy Spirit to speak to you in those three areas of love. And I want you to stay with me here. Maybe it's number one for you. Maybe there's a pleasure in your life that has taken precedence over your pleasure in Jesus. What's that thing for you? That area that you feel like, I have to have this to be happy. I have to have this to be content. I have to have this in order to not be anxious anymore. I'm spending more time, energy, effort here because this really is what I love. This thing this person and it's replaced that area of Jesus for me the Holy Spirit right now is telling you 
I want you to, I, I need you to remember when I was preeminent in your life. So here's what I want you to do. I want you to try to paint a visual picture in your mind, if you can, of what it looked like when Jesus was your preeminent love. We've all had those seasons, if we're in Jesus, where Jesus was our preeminent, where we weren't distracted by a lesser love. What, what Jesus is saying in this text is, I want you to remember that. And so if you can right now, I just want you to visualize what that looked like for you in that season. What was that time? What was that season when Jesus was your preeminent? And now here's what I want you to do. I want you to repent. Remembering is a catalyst for repentance. And repent means to turn. And I want you to do it in this way. God, I can't will it. God, will you turn my heart back to you? Will you empower me to step into the repentance that I long for? Will you ask him to do that for you right now? Wherever that is, God, I just repent. God, I just repent. And then third, return. Just tell the Holy Spirit, by faith, I'm returning back to you as my first love. taking that step right now, God. Secondarily, there are some of you who need to remember, repent, and return when it comes to loving the other. Right now, you're struggling in a relationship. You're struggling with a person. You're struggling with forgiving them. You're holding on to bitterness. It's hard to love them. It's hard to love the other right now. Who is that person in your life? Who's that person in your life? Here's what I want you to do now. And if you're not sitting next to somebody, I want you to do this. The person sitting next to you, I just want you to pray this over them. Put your hand on them and pray this over them right now. Pray, God, will you give them the grace to remember, to repent, and to return in that relationship that's hard for them right now. Ask God, God, will you give them the ability to love with a supernatural kind of love in that relationship right now? So just take 
take 30 seconds and pray for the other person that's sitting next to you. God, empower them to love in an uncanny way, in a supernatural way. Pray that right now. I want you to pray for yourself that God would give you the grace to be a witness ask God God I remember and I'm sure you had those seasons where you just couldn't stop talking about Jesus I know you had if you're in Jesus there was that time where you just couldn't stop telling people about Jesus I want you to pray that same prayer. God, remember, repent, and return. God, help me to be a greater witness. And again, I I just want to explain what witness is. It's not you having to go through all the tenets of the gospel with somebody. It's you just simply witnessing to the fact that God shows up in your life in supernatural, powerful ways, and you live in that. When you go to the grocery store, when you talk to the neighbor, when you're sharing it with your friend, when you're talking, you're just being a witness of the fact that, man, I'm t- I got to tell you something. God showed up in this area in my life. You're just constantly witnessing of the reality of who God is in your life. That's what being a witness is. Just like that man who was born blind. He didn't go through all the gospels, but he just, he didn't go through all the tenets of the gospel and you got to be forgiven. And he, he, he just said, I'm just telling you something. Today, Jesus showed up on my doorstep, and now I can see. So I just want you to pray for yourself right now. God, because God is calling some of you guys in certain areas where you know he's telling you to be a witness, and you're keeping it quiet like the parents. And God is saying, you've got to speak up. Witness of me. So why don't you just pray for yourself and pray for the person sitting next to you. God, embolden and enable them to be a witness of the reality of just who you are in their lives in this day. Let's just pray right now. God, grant us the grace. And pray for us as a church to be that through this building. God, that we will be a witness through this building in Pasadena. So let's just pray with one voice. Let's pray. Let's cry out to the Lord. What is the fruit of genuine revival? It's the fruit of loving Jesus as preeminent. It's the fruit of loving others 
supernaturally. It's the fruit of loving to witness to people around you what you have gained and continue to gain in Jesus. And the consequence is that if we fail to do that, he will remove our lampstand. So let us be faithful to be a witness and a light. And how do we put ourselves in position to continue to allow for the fruit of revival to remain and grow? Remember, repent, and return. God, we just come and we ask that you would do just that. Grant us the grace to walk in the fruit of the kind of love that you desire for our church to walk in. And so God, help us to remember. Grant us the grace to repent and embolden, strengthen, and empower us by your spirit to return again. We thank you, Lord God. You have shown yourself we are a witness. Let us now go and tell it on the mountain what you have done for us. In Jesus' name, amen. That's all right.